My name is Pranesh Mahashankar and this is the Business Podcast. To kick off season 3 of the Business Podcast, we have on our show a man of not one but two talents. When his company Solution isn't busy figuring out how to decarbonize manufacturing using biology, his research also powers cancer drugs that go to drug trials. Please welcome Dr. Garab Chakrabarty, CEO of Solution to our show. Hello Dr. Garab, how are you feeling today? Hey, Pranish, good to good to meet you in person and uh, now feeling great. Feeling great. Feeling great. Awesome. Let's let's jump in. Um first of all, could you could you uh, briefly explain to us uh, what the long term business value of Solugen is you know where is it right now where do you see it going yeah i mean briefly if you think about what we're trying to do right we're trying to use carbon dioxide uh, and renewable material and convert it into um, materials and chemicals that we use every day and we want to do that using uh, synthetic biology uh, married to you know, traditional chemical engineering processes. So what that means for you know, the business, where, what is that, you know, what are the opportunities? It's quite large. Uh, if you look at the chemicals industry and materials industry, uh, just that industry and sector alone is a close to $6 trillion of, uh, of, of market value per year. And so our technology, we can address close to 90% of all chemicals and materials that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. So by proxy, um, the opportunity for us is massive. Um, the, the question for me is always how quickly can we become a dominant player in this industry? Because we're competing with folks like BASF, DuPont, Dow, guys who have been around for close to 100 years. And so we're doing something quite different in terms of how we're getting to these end products. Um, But you can imagine the big thing that we think about is how do we capture as much of this market as possible, as quickly as possible. So um, what was, and I have a follow up to this, what was the entry point, right? Because the names that you just uh, spouted off, they are conglomerates that have been in the grind for decades how how did you uh, figure out the entry point for your company not from a like a science perspective but more so like um like how did you evaluate the market forces and how did you figure out like what the mar- the entry point was um in terms of what your first product would be and how your go to market would be for that yeah i mean for us it was looking at a couple things one what could we make Two, could we make it at a price point more competitive than our competitors? And three, uh, it was understanding what were the pain points of the customer as it related to the products that we were going after. Because price by itself is important, but it's not everything. Um, And so that's where we landed on hydrogen peroxide first. Um, One, because we can make it technically uh, quite quite, uh, consistently. Number two, our price position and price point for it was much lower than the competitors. But three, we identified a pretty big problem in terms of how the chemical is distributed. Um, so traditionally, if you look at a chemical like peroxide, it's a, it's a dangerous molecule that requires a pretty um, 
pretty intense shipping conditions because you have to ship it over hundreds to thousands of miles uh, in hazardous material labeled containers. Uh, and there's a lot of spillages that happen when you go that far. So what we identified as a big problem was this uh, shipping, handling, and safety that's associated with the product. And what we reasoned was we can create a first peroxide production platform close to the end customer, uh, thereby uh, removing any concerns associated with uh, getting our, you know, getting uh, spillage or any handling issues. Instead, we would make it closer to site and do local deliveries. Um, and the knock-on effects for that were multitude, multitudinal. One being uh, we kind of made it very difficult for our competitors to come in and try to take our market share because we had the proximity to the customer, which allowed for near-term or at least on-demand um, uh, product delivery. That's impossible to do in the chemicals industry. If you look at how it works, it's largely, uh, it's largely a, um, you know, they, the, 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 the vendor tells you, hey, we're going to ship you this product in the next two weeks. You have no uh, idea of exactly when it's going to get there. So you have to actually do a lot of planning and management at the time around receiving the product. So for us, one value prop that we kind of were able to prove to a customer early on was by being close to site, we can deliver the product to them at a predictable time. Uh, so that they don't have to scramble to try to uh, receive the product. And so that was where we decided to go first. Um, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, I just want to take a second to shift gears. Um, you had an interesting childhood uh, from our discussions prior to this podcast. How did those experiences um, shape your psychology as a founder? Uh, and more importantly, how did you mold your own psychology as a founder as the company grew? Yeah, I think initially, uh, you know, I saw, you know, my family build a chemicals business um, from scratch. And so what I saw very quickly was the pain points in the industry are more tied to obviously price, um, price performance and supply chain reliability. Those are the three things that I saw growing up as the drivers for value. Um, and that actually shaped the way I thought about go to market quite uh, early on in the company's uh, history. And I'd say it was this kind of, it's almost a survival mentality when you know you, you have to be able to provide something of value to someone to, to, to justify your existence, right? As a new entrant, otherwise, uh, you know, th they'll just take whatever the bigger guys are giving them. So that was number one. I think as we started growing as a team, uh, one thing that I started really uh, leaning into was marrying this survival type mentality with, you know, it's important to build the culture of the company as well. Um, and so kind of moving away from just a survivalist instinct to saying, hey, if we're going to be around for the next hundred years, what is what are the things we have to do today to make sure that uh, the people around us are, are going to be with us for, for the long ride? And so that's, there's a large shift there. Sorry. Um, how does, uh, you know, how does your uh, psychology, not from your childhood experiences, but, um, you know, just generally, um, how does your psychology personality affect, you know, how the culture of Solution is shaped? Um, yeah, I think um, a big part of it is really figuring out what's, what's important, like, success-wise what's important for the company and what's 
you know, what's like too much. So for instance, I think for me, I'm, I am a big believer in like what I call micro pessimism, macro optimism, meaning um, on the small, on the short time frames, I think, uh, I think rather negatively, well, we have to assume the worst, uh, you know, to some degree and uh, build kind of around those assumptions. But I think at a macro level, uh, I'm a huge believer in feeling that there is a, there's, we're going to succeed no matter what. Um, so I, I never have that question in my mind. It's on the micro level uh, of, of thinking, you know, a bit negatively about, okay, or rather not negatively, I would say more paranoid where it's like, hey, maybe there's something around the corner that I'm not seeing. So constantly being vigilant of that kind of stuff. Um, so kind of balancing that with what I would consider the big uh, macro optimism uh, where I know for a fact that we're going to succeed. Sometimes I don't know how, <laughs> but I just know we will. I think the best leaders, and I've, uh, you know, I've observed are just insanely, insanely um, pragmatic uh, to the point where they seem pessimistic in the short term, but they have, they have like very realistic long-term timelines but the goals aren't realistic. They're pretty crazy goals. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, and let's shift gears again. Uh, you know, you met your co-founder and the current CTO of Solugen, uh, you know, Sean Hunt in a poker game. What drew you to poker? Um, you know, how did that, you know, how did those poker interactions, um, you know, feel like for you at the time and what skills did poker give you in business? Yeah, I think I, I was drawn to poker from super early age, um, even before like Texas Hold'em became like really cool and popular. Um, I think I, I, you know, I can't remember where it was probably on TV or something. I, I saw like, traditional poker and I was like I wonder what this is all about and I thought it was cool because it was like wait I can use my mind to make money <laughs> you know as like a nine-year-old you're just like oh, that's that's a cool idea um and I think that's where I started getting into it because it was just so it was just so congruent with the way I thought right like you have to be paranoid with kind of by hand by hand you never know what someone else has so I think it goes back to that micro pessimistic mentality where it's just like you know you have to play as if you have the best hand in the world but ultimately um you have to be cognizant that there's there could be something you know statistically there's something out there that is better than, than you and your hand so i think balancing those two i was always very good at that and i think like that's where poker is just a natural fixation for someone like me and then what i learned as you know playing through my teen years and then into my 20s i i quickly learned that like it's a very good gauge to see uh, how people think about risk, I guess, like how people manage in the face of risk um, and, you know, kind of size up individuals on how they make decisions in an uncertain environment. Um, there's really like two extremes, right? Like one who is so conservative, they'll never play a hand. And then the people who will play every hand just because, you know, they think that <laughs> they, they think they're God's gift and have to, you know, show, show, show what they can do. So I, I feel like there's like, um, I get more excited by uh, people who are at one extreme and then transition over time to somewhere in between. That excites me more. 
because it shows that not everyone knows how to play poker initially. So yeah, you're going to be either too conservative or too, um, you know, risk, uh, take, take a lot of risk. However, I think uh, most exciting players to me are the ones that over time are coming into that in-between where they learn how to appreciate the risk but still play boldly. Uh, that's when you know it's, there's something interesting about this person because it means that there's a growth mindset, that they're not statically fixed to you know, however things are done. They're more driven by a results-oriented uh, outcome than kind of what they wish to do. And so from that perspective, when me and Sean played, um, I'll be honest, initially, Sean, he was not a good player. Um, <laughs> you know, he was a pretty bad player. And I think uh, what was exciting was, you know, over time, I got to witness him transition from being a poor player to actually one of the best at the table. And that's what really got me, you know, just from a personal level, it, it intrigued me because it was like, I wonder, I wonder what's going through his head. Um, I, I wonder what's changing. I wonder what like meta analysis he's doing on his game that's allowing him to get better. And so that was when, you know, I knew that he was a person who had a growth mindset versus a, a stagnated or fixed mindset. There's this uh, Wall Street quote, um, it's, it's something along the lines of um, strong opinions loosely held. And I think um, poker really exemplifies that. Um, and you you just you just proved that entire quote so that that was a very interesting yeah, it's strong opinions loosely held that's right yeah yeah exactly um now speaking about your co-founders let's let's you know talk about you know your backgrounds right you have a background in oncology specifically uh, you know you had a focus on pancreatic cancer research while mm-hmm. Uh, your co-founder has a background in chemical engineering. You know, how do these different backgrounds inform how the company operates? Yeah, we, we call it like the cross-pollination mentality. Um, we, me and my co-founder just think so differently. It's, it's just shocking how differently we think about the world. Um, not, not in a ju- I'm not saying that as a judgment. I actually think it's a very powerful thing to have. Um, and, and oftentimes we come to the same conclusion just from two very different uh, points of view, like, you know, boring stuff like admin issues that pop up. He'll look at it much more from an engineer's perspective and kind of walk through slowly uh, and I mean, not necessarily slowly, but like methodologically, like step by step by step. For me, I kind of instinctually have an answer uh, and, and, I, and I feel like it's the right answer, but then I create like a logic framework where I ask myself like, well, what's going to make this wrong? Where's, where's this not correct? So for me, it's like, uh, it's a lot more like, I just know in my gut, like what the right answer is. And then my job is to prove that wrong. And I've been wrong a lot. So I think it's good that I'm able to kind of walk through that um, logic process. And kind of Sean comes at it from a bottoms up approach where he's like, I don't know the answer. Uh, but let me just ask the right question so I can get to an answer. So in a sense, it's like neither approach by itself is like, I think, sufficient. But I think together, it gives a very powerful uh, lens by which we can uh, approach the world. Uh, so we're not, um, you know, so we're not in a position where it's groupthink or something like that. Yeah, that's, you know, interesting. Uh I think after the podcast, I have one quick question for you, if we have the time, uh, because yeah. I, I just, yeah, because I, I, I'm, I'm curious about what your like MBTI personality types are, uh, but let's, 
yeah, uh, I, I'd love. <laughs> Very different. I'll say that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, you, you know, again, back to your research interest uh, prior to Solugen, you were, you're focused on pancreatic cancer, right? Which is what led you to discover the enzymatic reactions, um, you know, that, you know, became the basis of um, Solugen's product, um, or at least, you know, the first product. Um, yeah. What other research problems would you have worked on? Like what other research interests were sort of like swelling in your mind but you didn't have the time to allocate towards those. Yeah. Um, so do you mean specifically, just like a, in a broad sense, or do you mean specifically in context of cancer? Sorry. Just oh, sure no, just broadly anything. Like yeah. um, uh, I, there's so many famous entrepreneurs who talk about, you know, had I not worked on XYZ company, I would have, you know, done research in ABC, right? And they, some of them even write essays about it. So um, that, that's, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I think, um, yeah, there's a few things. One is topics that really got me interested were like aging. Um, that is something that is of utmost curiosity to me. Like, I, I, yeah, I think that's like one of those problems that it's going to persist for a long time before people realize it's a disease state. But like aging is something that I would probably have uh, pursued. Um, another topic that I found to be rather exciting and interesting was um, it's called like enzymatic, um, what's it called? E enzymatic uh, ore mining. So using enzyme type reactions to mine actual metal ores more efficiently, because what you find is in metal mining, you have uh, a lot of something called like tailings or runoff where you've got really nasty chemicals that go into circulation from mining activities. Um, sorry, sorry, may I interrupt you? Is this, sure. is, is this basically like the, like in simple terms, is this like the byproduct of the chemical reaction, like toxic byproduct? No, this is like, like if you look at an aluminum mine, for instance, right. um, the chemicals that are being used in the aluminum mine, they get runoff into the local water streams and in the groundwater. And so the issue there is all of a sudden now you're dealing with uh, contamination of, of, of villages and, and actually cities to some degree um, just for uh, metal mining. And so I was always interested in the idea of, well, how could we enzymatically use uh, biocatalysts to, to try to uh, remove some of the nasty chemicals that go down that stream. So that was, you know, another interest of mine. Um, aging that, and I'd say, the last one, it was, it was kind of early days, but like figuring out how to marry ideas around like blockchain to ideas of uh, genetic engineering. So like, how do we use uh, genetic engineering and the data that's generated and put it into a blockchain so it's more accessible for everyone to try to understand like, you know, hey, this CRISPR construct is, is quite good for knocking out this gene. Um, but it was a really early days for that. So um maybe more people are doing it now yeah that's wow that's fascinating that could be another podcast <laughs> yeah that's but, like a whole different um <laughs> whole different thing yeah unfortunately we don't have like three hours to do all of that um so speaking of you know uh processes 
you identified the chemistries that would yield you know carbon negative production right that's the whole goal of solution it's to decarbonize manufacturing why did solution decide you know not to sell to a company what what you had already built like the ip around the the process um the enzymatic reactions process or why did you not just license the ip why did you think that you had to do the capital heavy thing of building your own foundries what was the rationale behind that yeah i mean i think for for us it was a couple of things one we wanted to prove that this was real right i think uh one of the issues with a lot of the you know just going off of a licensing type play you don't get to see it to to full fruition because you don't know what the demands for the company like the the licensing company are and it might just get killed right sit on the shelf or something i think from our perspective we were far more interested in figuring out how do we prove without a doubt that this is going to be the future of chemicals manufacturing and for us to do that we needed to do it ourselves and show that you know the margin is there the growth potential is there and so it gave us a lot more leverage at the um negotiating table when we came at it as hey look this is something that we can just keep doing over and over and over again and just make a multi billion dollar company or you know watch us do it a couple times and then see if it makes sense for us to partner up you have way more leverage at that it's just like the poker game right people will start fearing you not fearing you but people will start taking you seriously when they start seeing your chip count go up so they'll see you as a as a threat and so that's kind of the game we want to play is mm-hmm. we're just getting our chip count up right now and i think where people now are seeing it is that chip counts growing very quickly and so now the question is well how do they get how do they get part of the action and now we're in a better position to say hey you know yeah you could partner with us but it's not going to be cheap right and so so i think that's kind of where we wanted to be um and yeah it took some sacrifice right we had to really build it uh it took a couple of years for us to get there but i think we're now getting to that point where that chip count is starting to look um at least a little bit threatening and so it, it's wise for us to start seeing if we can um do some of these licensing plays down the road but right now um it's just a damn good business right like it's a 60 70% uh, margin business in the chemical space it's unheard of you know um so we want to keep doing that Uh, and then see kind of what's what opportunities open up from there and th- and that's basically um the same margin profile as a software business like the average software business is yeah. somewhere between 70 to 90% right gross margins wow exactly. that's that's amazing um and so that's why for me it's always like hey like why would we even why would we even think about giving up this va- value um if we believe in it let's just prove it right No, that makes a lot of sense. Solution reminds me a lot of how um, Reliance uh, built its chemicals business in the in the last century. It's very interesting. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. How do you? Yeah, I'm just interested in how you think about that. I they didn't have a lot of capital to start with, right? Like the, and I'm not. For me, it's more of a behavioral thing as opposed to like an operational thing. If that makes sense, like. the the behavioral aspect of having the cost discipline to not have much but still pull off a very capital heavy business and then generate those margins which they did yeah it just reminds me of that it's it's awesome and um, now look at it, right one of the biggest 
I mean, obviously, <laughs> one of the biggest conglomerates in the world, you know, with this stuff. Yeah, I can, I can, I can talk your ear off about all of this. But uh, anyway, we, we, we have a, a time limit. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, give, giving, uh, getting leverage um, at the table based on how you're structured, right? You know, how, given how differentiated Solution is, how do you think about the investors you partner with? Yeah, so I think like you're talking about the investors that we have. Yeah, so to be more specific, right? Like how do you pick your shareholder base? How do you think about the diversity of your shareholder base? Who do you pick, right? And Yeah, for us, we always look at more long-term minded folks. Um, I think from our perspective, the, the more long-term minded the investor, the easier it is for them to understand and appreciate exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, so largely that means avoiding software um, investors uh, and really gearing more towards the deep tech folks, hard tech folks. So Founders Fund is an investor. We really like the way they think. They're long-term minded. Um, Tomasic is an investor. Tomasic is right. obviously sovereign wealth. Not really a sovereign wealth, but uh, generational. They're yeah. looking at generational opportunities. Right. Um, and a few other folks that are uh, pretty long-term minded for us. Um, and so that's where we've optimized for today. And I think we're going to continue to do that, especially this next, you know, coming fundraisers, we'll, we'll probably do the same thing. Huh. I, I'm sorry, complete tangent. Um, Demasek, that's, that's huge. I, I, I feel bad that I didn't know that. That's, that's awesome. Demasek is yeah. like one of the best in the business. That's amazing. Yeah, they're, uh, I would say, probably, yeah, probably the best, you know. <laughs> probably you the best? Their, yeah. Right. I, again, that's another uh, podcast. Um, f- finally, um, you know, how do you map your goals? Like, do you, do you go, you know, what would my younger self think? Or do you go, what would my older self think? Hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think I always think about it as um, if I'm like 100 years old and the world is still like, you know, in the state that it's in and uh, I didn't do anything about it, that makes me that makes me a little worried, right? Because that basically means that there's this huge opportunity that I've I've let go. And so that's, you know, definitely one way I look at it. The other way, you know, obviously is like, I do think family and personal life is very important. So I think making sure that we don't go around and, you know, uh, forget about family. So understanding how can you, how can you make your family part of the mission and bring them along so that, you know, in future generations, maybe I didn't accomplish it, but someone, you know, in my family lineage can, you know, accomplish what I started. So I think those are the two ways that I think about it is, making sure that, you know, we're solving massive problems um, and having a generational problem solving mentality. So for me, it's not generational wealth. It's like, okay, in three generations, have I solved the problem? Um, and so that goes way beyond me, right? Uh, so I think it's, it's it's less about me and more about the problem that we're trying to solve. I mean, uh, that, that was amazing. Like thinking about problem solving in terms of generations, I've never heard of that. Um, so that was... That was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on this well, podcast. 
absolute pleasure having you uh is there anything that you want to you know share before you get you go no I, that that's it man i really appreciate it um and, and you know keep it up and and i hope uh, you know we can talk soon yeah uh same here thank you so much thanks Pranish. bye bye this audio was obtained as a creative commons license thank you so much for listening to this podcast ESG investments um and their most financing most recent financing round was a series B round which led Aclima raising um uh, which led Aclima raise for 40 million dollars in a round led by Clear Vision Ventures with previous investments